You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we're going to talk with GoGo's bassist Kathy Valentine about her new memoir. We're also going to pay tribute to the late Eddie Van Halen. But first, let's review some new music. On Civil War, on Civil War, how long must we fight this? On Civil War, same old wounds we opened before. Nobody wins in Uncivil War. That is a little bit of Uncivil War, the title track from the 10th album by powerhouse blues vocalist Shamika Copeland. Um, Greg, the first line of uh, any bio of Shamika will always be that she is the daughter of uh, the Texas blues guitar legend Johnny Copeland, but she has been making music since her mid-teens. Her first album, 1998's Turn the Heat Up, came out on uh, Alligator Records when she was only 19 years old. She has worked with some of the key players in the history of blues and American roots music ever since. She's had albums produced by Steve Cropper, Mm -hmm. the famous uh, session musician, and by uh, Dr. John, who gets a, a very moving tribute song on her new album, Dirty Saint. What is Shamika Copeland given us on this record? Uh, I want to save as much time as possible to dig into what that offering is. Uh, So let's uh, let's not waste any more time introducing her. This is a song called Clotilda's On Fire from Shamika Copeland's new album, Uncivil War. She's coming for you. Hear the chains rattle. Turn you into a slave. Another piece of shadow across the seas, stormy waters show no mercy. She was Satan's daughter, born to steal, bodies to sell. She had her own special place in hell. That is Clotilda's On Fire from the new Shamika Copeland album, Uncivil War. What a song it is, too, Jim. Uh, it's the story of the last slave ship uh, from Africa to reach America. It sunk in Mobile Bay, Alabama, and was discovered only last year, the wreckage of that ship. Apparently, the uh, captain burned it into the bay uh, to hide the evidence of the fact that he was importing slaves illegally at the time. And it is an indication of the topicality, the passion, the social commentary that uh, Shamika Copeland has been offering in a lot of her recent music. Um, this is a woman who does not shy away from, um, you know, what's going on in the world now and our history that got us here. You know, some people uh, talk about her as a blues singer, and obviously that's her tradition. But when we're talking about where she's been reaching on her uh, last several records, especially, uh, she's touching on gospel, country, Americana. Yeah. Yeah. Her genre agnosticism 
to me echoes people like Emmy Lou Harris or Rhiannon Giddens mm-hmm. in her diversity of viewpoints and the way she's bringing in all these musical influences. I mean, look at the guest list. Jason Isbell, Steve Cropper, Webb Wilder, Dwayne Eddy, king of the yeah. surf guitar playing on this record. A mandolin a virtuoso, Sam Bush, Jerry Douglas on dobro. You know, she's exploring all these different genres. And on top of that, as I mentioned, the topicality of the songwriting. I mean, you look at a track like Walk Until I Ride. I'm gonna walk until I ride. Keep my head held way high. Take my freedom, take my pride. I'm gonna walk, walk, walk until I ride. Civil rights uh, uh, anthem, if I ever heard one, with that gospel feel, the way it goes into that double-time ending at the that, end. That is the best Staples singer song yeah. that the Staples themselves never it, gave it us. It comes right out of that message music tradition of the Staples. You know, a track like Apple Pie in a 45. Mm. I mean, she's, uh, she's addressing all these key issues uh, in America. And then at the end, uh, you know, a, f- a few love songs. But mostly on this social and political commentary track, you know, big voice, big heart, uh, a lot of passion here and a lot of fire here. She's just continues to grow not only as a singer but as a as an artist. Oh, absolutely! I couldn't agree more. I interviewed Shamika when that debut album came out way back when, when she was a mere nineteen years old. And I've been a fan of her music uh, throughout. I don't think we've ever reviewed a Shamika Copeland album though on the show. We talked about her with uh, Bruce Iglauer of Alligator Records, and I told him, you know, to his face, I've always thought they've been a little too clean. I've wanted mm. to hear Shamika get gut bucket blues in the uh, in the production, and I don't think that was the problem. I think she was not. Uh, confident enough in herself yet to go as deep into the politics as she does here. The production is still a little clean for my taste. You know, give me a little more fuzz box. But the genre diversity is all over the map, and it is so welcome. And for her to be covering songs about gun violence, for her to be paying tribute to Dr. John, for her to be uh, covering her dad again, uh, as she did on the first album, uh, she returns to that here with Love Song. When you say there's Love Song at the end, yeah, mm-hmm. it's from her dad. Yeah. We sing and play the blues all night long, but you come and own so strong you got me singing a love song and 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 a song like she don't wear pink which is a call to young women to to not fall into gender stereotypes Um, i've never heard her this deep she's been moving toward it and i've never heard her this broad in terms of influence this is a masterful record finally uh 10 albums in we have the album that that voice has always deserved undoubtedly track called On My Own from the new Shamir self-titled record. Finally, a Shamir album by mm. Shamir. <laughs> it took him seven albums to get there. Uh, Shamir Bailey, uh, may, you may recall, we had him on the show years ago uh, when that incredible debut album 
uh, Ratchet came out in 2014. Yeah, we, he, he was on episode 530. Go to the archives when you're done with this one. He, at, at the age of 19, he was signed to the label of Adele and Radiohead, XL Recordings, and made that debut. It was based on a, a demo that he'd made in his bedroom. Mm-hmm. Producer in New York heard it, signed him, and made a, a, a great record. Um, and it sort of positioned Shamir Bailey from Las Vegas as a, um, a, a, as a club artist. Uh, he did not like the direction that that record took and uh, went on on his own for the next six records. Um, started recording prolifically starting in 2017, self-releasing and self-producing uh, his subsequent recordings. They've been all over the map musically, and now we land on this self-titled record, his seventh of his career, self-titled Shamir. Here's a track from it called Running on Sound Opinions. Running by Shamir from his new album, self-titled, simply Shamir. Uh, Greg, uh, Shamir has been very prolific in 2020. We got two albums. Uh, Cataclysm uh, came first, uh, a dark record. What would what would the Jesus and Mary chain sound like if, if uh, Shamir fronted <laughs> them? Uh, noisy, wonderful, but still melodic. He is a great songwriter. Um, you know, and as a bedroom artist, let's face it, self-recording, self-producing, he, he was in uh, socially distanced quarantine mm. long before the plague fell upon us. Uh, Shamir is, is the butterfly uh, uh, coming into transformation. That's been his m- metaphor this year. Constant regeneration of the soul is incredibly painful, he said in a great quote I saw, but transformation is beautiful. There, There is is hope for the future here. And, and you know, his way with a melody uh, is, is powerful and potent and inspiring, and it does offer hope even in dark times. And that countertenor voice, mm. <laughs> you know, it is, it is androgynous, it is powerful, it is seductive. It can be haunting. Uh, you know, that is an incredible instrument. I remember when he was on the show, you know, we're sitting there watching him sing, and we're saying, how, how is he mm. doing that, this young kid from Las Vegas? With an encyclopedic musical curiosity. He loves house. He loves, you know, shoegazer, for lack of a better word. He loves funk. He loves it all. And, and really, it's a Prince-level talent. Yeah, the Prince uh, comparison has been made a few times, including uh, comparisons to Prince's voice, uh, Camille, the alter ego of Prince. You know, Shamir sort of sounds like that. But I have to say, you know, we're reaching for ways to describe Shamir's voice because it really is one of a kind. As soon as you hear like two notes from that, from his voice and you know right away who it is, there's no other artist that quite sounds like that. And it's an extraordinary instrument. I, I love the way on this record, and, and, and really his previous records too, held the same kind of uh, strength, but that ability to sound both deadpan 
kind of like, okay, I'm, I'm sort of cool and removed and yeah. devastated at the same time. You know, the, the sense that he can be in a wrenching ballad and still have a sense of humor about it. Um, you know, I love the way he delivers a line like, mess with me and face impending doom. He makes it sound like he's, you know, he's singing a, a love song to you, a ballad, you know? Yeah. There's a wry wit at heart here, and at the same time, a deep seriousness, because he's talking about loneliness in a lot of these tracks, and I'm okay with it, you know? It, it's killing me, but at the same time, I'm also uh, just fine with being on my own if I can't find the right partner. I mean, there's a whole song about I don't mind dining out alone. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, Jim, because so many people love that Ratchet record, and it and you really did feel it did him a disservice, because it sort of painted him in a particular corner, like, oh, the black kid who's the R&B dance club guy. Yeah. And he didn't want to be just that, because his background in that was everything from avant punk to, you know, a solo country singer-songwriter, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. in Vegas, you Absolutely. know, as a teenager. And you're getting all of that on this record. You're getting, you know, the, pl the track we played, Running, is kind of a great little synth-pop track, mm -hmm. you know? And then you juxtapose that with a track like Other Side, which has this profound pedal steel country feel to it. Mm -hmm. You know, and then, the, as you mentioned, the sort of the blown out indie rock, like those distorted drums and guitars, you know, so he's all over the map musically. The one thing, again, that I keep coming back to, this guy writes great hooks, yeah. and that, that voice just holds everything together. You know, the only, the only thing I'd, I'd put on this is that uh, I loved Cataclysm, and we didn't get around to reviewing it on the show. And then I mixed him up on my own playlist, mm -hmm. and I got to say that, that as a duo, this is one of the masterpieces of the year, right? I, I do prefer to listen to it that way. I don't know if that's cheating. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's but, okay. But there is a, I wonder why he decided they were two separate albums, because this would have been a hell of a double album. I, I feel like this is the record where he puts it all together, like all those different threads that he'd been exploring on all his records finally coming together in one place. You know, you mm. mentioned the Prince comparison. How about his Sign of the Times? You know, that okay. kind of like, right. I'm, I'm, I'm going to put everything in here. So would you recommend to somebody new to Shamir, start with this self-titled Not a bad album. place. I mean, a yeah. lot of people would go to Ratchet, but this is kind of gives you a better overview of who he really is. Two enthusiastic... Uh, endorsements of those records, Jim. Uh, and we want to ask our listeners, what do you think? Do you have an opinion on the latest from Shamir or Shamika Copeland? Leave us a post on Facebook, Twitter, or send us a voice memo to interact at soundopinions.org. When we come back, our conversation with the Go-Go's bassist and author, Kathy Valentine. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. Something Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRogatis. And this week, we're talking with Kathy Valentine. As the bassist and a songwriter for the Go-Go's, Valentine was integral to their all-star starting five, which included rhythm guitarist Jane Weedlin, drummer Gina Schock, lead guitarist and keyboardist Charlotte Caffey, and lead singer Belinda Carlisle. 
Together in the early 80s, those five created three great albums, Beauty and the Beat, Vacation, and Talk Show. The group broke up in 1984, but the big hits, including We Got the Beat, Our Lips Are Sealed, Vacation, and many others, are still beloved, and they've stood the test of time. Earlier this year, Kathy released her book, All I Ever Wanted, a rock and roll memoir about her challenging childhood, highs and lows with the band, and her life so far. A documentary called The Go-Go's also came out earlier this year and is available to stream on Showtime. Welcome to Sound Opinions, Kathy. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. When you were growing up, there weren't very many all-women rock bands to look to for inspiration. And even when there were, they weren't getting attention or publicity. How and when did you decide you wanted to be a musician? Even though I loved rock and roll and my hero was Keith Richards and I loved Chuck Berry and I mean, I just loved guitar playing. And yet here I am strumming my little acoustic and it doesn't occur to me that I can do what they're doing. It doesn't even enter my mind. Then I'm 14 years old and we go to England. My mom's English, so she's taking off every now and then taking me. And I happen to be at my grandma's house and I look at the TV, it's nighttime, Top of the Pops comes on and there's Susie Quattro. Can the can! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Consider my mind blown and thank goodness. I mean, I'm not saying I wouldn't have gotten there eventually anyway, maybe I would have, but seeing Susie Quattro, I thought all I want is to go back to Austin and find girls. That was it. I wanted other people like me. I, I didn't want to mm-hmm. just go find, maybe because I was intimidated, like, like what guy is going to play with me? So I thought I'll find other girls my age like me. So that was, that was life changing. Yeah, it's also very pioneering of you at that young age to be thinking that way because obviously there weren't a ton of role models in terms of bands that were formed with all women at that time. I didn't know. I didn't know about Fanny. I'd never heard of Fanny. I didn't. Uh-huh. Uh, I didn't know about the Pleasure Seekers in the '60s, the Debutantes, Goldie and the Gingerbreads. There was bands. There was women in the '60s starting bands, but I'd never heard of them. We didn't have YouTube. We didn't have. We didn't have fanzines even that right. talked about that yeah. stuff. So yeah, yeah. In Austin, especially, it was all guys. Uh, there was some blues singers, like some uh, women blues singers. And when the Runaways came through town, I was like, my mind was blown again because I thought I was the only one. And then there's these gals come, and they're my age, but they're already on tour. They already have like they're doing. It. You know, Kathy, so many people forget that the Go-Go's, when they formed in L.A., were from the punk scene. And you were in the punk scene in Austin. You moved to L.A. What comes through in All I Ever Wanted, all you ever wanted, Kathy Valentine, was to make music. And you weren't going to let anybody stand in your way and tell you you couldn't do it. That's for sure. But what happened with the Go-Go's was a different approach. They're in the punk rock scene and like I've been playing guitar for a while so I had just left that mindset of you have to play like Garrett Clapton to make it. I had just left that mindset Mm -hmm. and started my punk band like 
you know, I can play over. I can just, as long as I'm fast and, and furious yeah. and, and doing good songs. But they had a, a different kind of awakening, which is that we don't know how to play, but we can still start a band. So without, <laughs> without the punk rock scene in L.A., the Go-Go's wouldn't have started. There would not have been a band for me to meet when I got there. So you're playing guitar. They decide before the recording of the first album that uh, we need to up our game a little bit in the rhythm section. And the story is a wonderful one. It's in the movie. It's in your book. Here's a cassette of all the songs we have. Can you learn them on bass by tomorrow? (laughs) Almost, yeah. I mean, what kills me the most about it, like, if we had a tour booked for the summer, we would probably rehearse for three weeks. Even though we've been together decades and we know those songs back and forth, we would probably still rehearse for weeks because we don't play together all the time. So what cracks me up is like, you know, the biggest shows that they've ever done, which is four sold out nights at the Whiskey with two shows a night and four days before the gig, they don't even have a bass player lined up, you know. So <laughs> so not only am I like learning my instrument, that, that instrument for the first time, but I got two rehearsals with the band. You know, all the rest was just by myself, like just staying up all hours into the night, play, rewind, play, rewind, like learning these songs and... Uh, Oh, when they asked me to do it, I was kind of, it was kind of like a lark, like, oh, yeah, they're popular. This will be fun. When I said yes, it didn't occur to me that I would love them and that I would want to be in that band so bad. I was a kid when Beauty and the Beat came out, and I bought it, and I loved it. You guys were so tight, and the songs were so great. It's a great story. So these songs had been coming together. You go into the recording studio. Right out of the bat, you record a number one hit album. But Goddard's advice, who, who was a great pop producer, is just slow things down a little. Let everybody hear how strong these melodies are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he recognized that the songs were well-crafted, well-constructed, songs and uh there was something about our songs that really did have you know a popular appeal pop music but there was there was a they were played slower and that was kind of it that was kind of the only thing he did differently and yet you know i i was interested to read of the band's response uh to the record when you finally sat down with the record company and listened to the record and you guys were weren't weren't exactly blown away by your own record right uh, we thought it s- sounded sterile and clean, and you know, we we would play and record, and then we'd go out on and have fun, you know. So, and also they couldn't really afford us to sit around in a hotel while they mixed the record. So we kind of just assumed what was going to come back was going to sound like how we sounded live, and it didn't. So we were we were shocked and we were mad at him, but as it went on to sell and especially even I think more so now than ever it's like when I hear the the music on the radio or in the supermarket or wherever I happen to be and hearing a go-go song I'm uh, really grateful for how he recorded that that record mm-hmm. it's got a timelessness mm-hmm. to it yeah it sounds classic Can you hear-
Yeah, it does. And you uh, you came late to the band, and yet one of your songs that you had written for a previous band, right? The the, the Tech Stones, I believe. Yeah. Uh, Can't stop the world ends up capping the record. It's absolutely one of my favorite songs. How did that come about, that that song ended up on the record? Well, when, when they asked me to stay in the band, you know, I was really clear from the beginning that I wanted to be concluded as, as a writer as well. And they were super happy to have another writer. And, you know, they looked up to me as a musician. They, they saw me as bringing a lot to the band uh, that they were excited about. But the songs were written, they had been done, you know, great collection of songs. And we were kind of surprised and taken aback when Richard said, we need one more song and I don't want to use any of the other ones that you have. And he brought in a, a cover and we thought, well, no, we, we want it to be all of our songs. And I had showed Charlotte Can't Stop the World and she advocated, I, I felt too new and to, to like, hey, let's do one of my songs. But Charlotte advocated for that song, and Richard liked it, everybody liked it, and we worked it up. It was the only song that hadn't been played, you know, live and and been seasoned a little. So I was insecure about it. I mean, I was insecure about a lot more things than I let on at that age and at that time. But over the years, hearing from fans that it's one of their favorites or makes their favorites list. I'm I'm very song oriented, you know, whatever it takes when I come up with any part, whether it's ideas, you know, we all kind of help each other with, with things. And it's always about what makes the song sound the best. You know, that's that's always what it's about. So mm -hmm. and everybody kind of manages, you know, all along in, in rehearsals to put aside you know, whatever your ego. Like I would say all the time, do you which part do you like better? This bit, this or this, you know, and play and everybody would weigh in like, you know, so we've always helped each other out. That song in particular, though, sounds very self-empowering. You know, you were saved by rock and roll. You know, it's a, it's not a cheap sentiment at all. It's a, it absolutely heartfelt, and I felt some of that vibe in this song as well. Was that something that you were writing about your life? Yeah, I that song has a really special place in, in my heart because I had moved to L.A. with my very best friend uh, to start our band, and she kind of betrayed me and abandoned me. She had a fake ID and could go to the bars, and I was I was only 19 and the drinking age was 21. And so she's running around all these clubs with people and I'm just all by myself in this crummy apartment. And it's really where songwriting started becoming like the therapy and the friend that it would remain for the rest of my life. And Can't Stop the World was, it wasn't the first song I'd ever written, but it was the first song I'd ever written where I'm expressing what's happening with me internally and externally and, and processing it in a musical way. And in my book, I write, that's to me where I really became a musician and a songwriter because I was, I was using music to, to help me, you know, through a tough time. And it's still what I, I do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's what can't stop the world. It's when I was lonely. I was by myself. I had no friends and I wrote, we don't get along in those same, uh, couple of months when I first got to LA and I wrote vacation songwriting became like important to me 
Vacation becomes a title track, becomes a big hit on the second record. To what extent was it like you guys were on this nonstop roller coaster ride? You know, uh, more, 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 more. They wanted to put out another single from Beauty and the Beat. You were like, no, we want to put our next record out. Kind of took it on when you shouldn't have. <laughs> you know, like, let's wait six more months. But, but you decided to make the second record. To what extent was it like, you just needed a vacation, Kathy. <laughs> Let me off the roller coaster just for a bit. Well, one of my favorite things about writing my book, all I ever wanted was getting to kind of air out some of those gripes and career mistakes, you know, because it's not the sort of thing that you get asked in interviews a lot. Or So it was awesome to be able to say, I think, you know, we made a mistake and it was yeah. squarely on the band. I mean... The label wanted to do more singles. The smart thing for us to do would be to just release more singles, but it was so dumb. And yet we're so proud that nobody's telling us what to do. We call the shots. (laughs) We know what's best for us. Only the Go-Go's decide what the Go-Go's are going to do. And so there was two singles off, off of Beauty and the Beat, and we go into vacation and... We had very little material. We had the leftover ones that Richard didn't want to put on the first album. We had a couple things that we'd written, you know, on the fly when we were touring. And we had Vacation, which ended up being, you know, kind of a a lifesaver for the band at that point in time. And we had been playing it. The very first concert video we did is called Totally Go-Go's, and there's a very early version of the of the band doing Vacation. And that was another song that was like Can't Stop the World. It was really from the heart. It was really authentic. It was written from a place of longing and, and nostalgia. And it's just another example of how songwriting became how I processed. When we return, Kathy Valentine describes what it was like when things began to fall apart for the Go-Go's and the fear she felt about losing her musical family. Plus, Greg will pay tribute to the late Eddie Van Halen. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRogatis. And this week, we're talking with author and Go-Go's bassist Kathy Valentine about her new book, All I Ever Wanted. Let's jump back into the interview. You mentioned the honesty in All I Ever Wanted. It is an unflinchingly honest, soulful book. There's humor in there. There's also things that that can make a fan cry. I have to say, even more than the Alison Elwood film, uh, you know, there's a sadness that came over me at at some points, Kathy, because you guys admit the mistakes that you made. (laughs) Uh, Firing the first manager, you know, getting sucked into that industry. Uh, You know, I, I think wanting to create and make the second album was a noble idea, right? But 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 it all kind of was speeding up and you were ignoring each other. In in the movie we we get a sense in the book you treat it differently. Uh Charlotte Caffey's heroin addiction, you were unaware, right? Uh uh through much of that and then when you became aware, it's just it's so sad. It's like this industry chewed you up and spit you out and I hate that because I love the band so much. And then of course there is the redemptive ending. You are clean and sober. You are a mom. You are still making music. The go-go's are still happening, right? But geez, I, there should have been a six, ten album career, you know, from album number one, and instead there were three. Well, um, I think one of the things of my life I've had to come to terms with, you know, I, I came to music and I came to the go-go's 
with my own agenda, my own set of, of dreams. And, and I think what I've learned is that, you know, while you're in a band, everybody has that like-minded goal of making it and not mm-hmm. wanting to go back to your day job or have a day job and, you know, having that be what you do. That's the goal and everybody wants it. But there's a lot of other stuff, you know, and for me, the stones were my template, you know, throughout punk rock or whatever, that was the template that was impressed on me, uh, was that there's a lead singer and then there's everybody else and there's the songwriting team and you do album and some of them suck, you get lost along the way, but you just keep doing it and you keep doing it. So it took me a while to accept that the Go-Go's were never going to be that. And when I say we're never going to be the Stones, I don't mean like culturally that of that weight I just mean with that kind of longevity and like you say putting album after album out and it's it is sad but we we were really young you know and we we worked really hard and we were very immature and you know there was all kinds of stuff going on but mainly you know people didn't want the same thing anymore you know yeah all I wanted was to to keep going you know by by year three to me like one in a million gets to that place and yeah you don't throw it away i was very single-minded and i was very like i gotta keep this this mm-hmm. is all i ever wanted and i would think everyone has to be happy it has to be fun because i might lose it and it was very hard work because i was like constantly trying to put out fires and make people laugh and be the life of the party and make it fun and even if something was going wrong make light of it make it something that we laughed about i mean trying to have it be fun was getting to be like not fun at all. <laughs> yeah. That's a really poignant point that you made in the book. I highlighted some lines that really jumped out. I mean, the one was that my driving focus was to keep that blank together uh, no matter what. And that sort of went hand in hand with an earlier point in the book where you talk about all I wanted was a family and the band was it. The band became the family. Yeah. And, um, and obviously I can see why those two things went hand in hand. It wasn't just commerce that you were keeping this band together for it was there were many many other reasons personal reasons for for wanting that exactly and what i recognize is that that's not what other people are feeling you know it's like uh, the other girls they had families they they grew up in normal families with brothers and sisters and and more stability or or whatever the circumstance was and oddly enough we didn't really talk about that stuff that much you know we were kind of very in the moment and entertaining ourselves and all about having fun and what's where's the party and how do we deal with this and griping about that and trying to make the tour manager's head explode and, you know, <laughs> whatever seemed like fun. But we didn't, like, I, I don't think people really knew that much about how I'd grown up. I certainly know my book kind of surprised the people in the band, what, I, what the things I'd gone through. And I think we come in with baggage, each of us, or um, if not baggage, a different goals. Like, you know, maybe somebody else just, you know, craves attention or craves the spotlight. Or maybe somebody else, like Gina is just a, a workhorse. She's just like, whatever she does, she wants to just work at it. And she's got this blue collar ethic almost where you just put in your time and you, it doesn't come easy. You, you got to work for it. And everybody's bringing in their their characteristics, their background, and mine was very um, dysfunctional in a way. It was like I, I really, but it wasn't dysfunctional in, in like a, a a really messed up way. It was just a longing, a longing to belong. Mm-hmm. 
Fill in those gaps a little bit about, you know, the dysfunctional beginning, because I think it, it's the key to the book, really. Um, I mean, just in, obviously you wrote a book about it, so I'm not expecting you to rehash the book, but the fact that you were basically raised by your mother, and, and that I use that term loosely, right? I mean, it, it kind of starts there, right? Where, where you were essentially uh, out on your own from a very early age, right? I felt like um, it was my job to take care of myself. My mom was, I wouldn't go so far to say, like, self-centered, narcissistic, you know, although that might have been part of it. But I think she was just keeping herself afloat. And she was young, and she was a student, and she had a job, and and uh, she was by herself raising me. So I think I sensed, and maybe it's just uh, kind of how I'm wired, but I just felt like I got to keep it together because if I'm a mess... She's not going to be able to handle that. She's, you know, she's barely treading water as it is. So my sense was always take care of myself. Everything's okay. It was my default way of going through life for decades was like, everything's okay. It's okay. You don't ever, because what good does it do you to, to be hurt or to be a mess? And drugs and alcohol helped everything be okay so that I could maintain and keep that that front going that everything's okay and that's how I brought I brought that to the band too everything's no we're yeah. no Charlotte's on drugs no she's not she's fine everything's fine you know yeah. um, we're tired we don't want to make a record we don't want to do this we don't want to go on tour no everything's fun it's great you know I was just like lived in denial um, but yeah I think that was all about my childhood. I think also there was a period of long period of processing, like what what actually happened to us. Um, you know, you look at the the band imploded in the '80s, uh, despite the fact that they were hugely popular, and the band, in fact, was going through a, a really rough time there for for a few decades after you broke up. In terms of, you know, the, between the lawsuits and the recriminations uh, within the band and by previous members of the band. So what? finally brought it to the place where it's at now, where the five of you seem to be in a pretty good place and making music again. What led to that point? Well, time and, you know, dynamics aren't like static, you know, dynamics, especially in like a family. And it's so much like a family. It's so much like a marriage, um, a relationship. It's almost, you know, like, I think we've all been in a relationship with someone and you get in an argument and then they're like, you always do this. And you're like, what do you mean I always do that? You never said I always do that. Or they'll be like, and you never put the top on the toothpaste. And you're like, Let's, <laughs> what are you talking about? We've been living together for six years and now you're telling me that bugs you? Yeah. So there's all that like little stuff that gets on people's nerves that pe- that goes unaddressed. And, and the dynamics are shifting and things that, that hurt your feelings they, they can stay lodged in there. But for the Go-Go's, I think the, the, the worst thing that happened for me 
was, you know, being kicked out of the band, basically, and not understood the confusion and, and what was around that. And so I go back into the band and that led to a lot because we really, you know, had to kind of clear the air a lot. And mm-hmm. writing my book helped for me a lot. Like I was able to to see the band in a way that I just thought I don't want to hold a grudge. I don't want to. I don't want it ruined. I don't want this special magical thing in my life to be ruined by this moment of dysfunction and toxicity that wouldn't have even happened if I'd been there. Let's face it. You know, the dynamic of one person not being in the room. It was a real thing, but. The thing that that surprised me was the the documentary. I think that is what has finally, through all the problems, the, the inequality with money, the, the publishing, the songwriting, people making more money, that's a thing that's that's been there for a really long time, you know. And as one of the writers, you know, I, I felt that inequality, but you can't fix it really it's like everybody has to be on the same page and if they're not what are you going to do about it so things like that were always an issue but the documentary kind of brought a level of healing and forgiveness that i didn't know we were capable of reaching and and mm. i think part of it was seeing you know decades condensed into 90 minutes and seeing this whole big picture it's hard just like writing the book did for me I think it was hard for anybody to see that film and go, there's nothing that bad that that should outweigh what this whole big picture is. There's a generational shift, you know, and I, I teach at Columbia College, right? And I, have, I, I teach courses in writing about music. And I think that 20-year-old musicians who read this, uh, you know, the abortions, the, the sexual assault, the dysfunctional upbringing, you know, I mean, it's stark, it's honest in a way. I mean, you have to go to something like Charlie Mingus's uh, Beneath the Underdog, right, to get this kind of, yes, I'm a genius, everybody thinks I'm a genius, guess what, I was up here's how i came up right yeah. and you know that is the core of punk yes, right yeah uh i came from nowhere i had nothing that you don't have i did this you can do it that is a huge gift to an entire generation yeah and my daughter you know at the beginning she was like why would anybody want to write this stuff about themselves that and have everybody know about it and you know, it was hard to explain because at the time she was like, I think, 13 or 14. And it was hard to explain. Like I said, it really gives people hope. You know, it gives people yeah. like to know that they can still be loved and have good people in their lives and have successful careers. They can screw up and make a lot of mistakes and and have bad things happen to them and be victimized and all kinds of stuff. But they can still have lives where they have good people love them and careers that take them all the way to the top. So yeah, create great lasting enduring art. Yes, exactly. 
We have been talking to Kathy Valentine, uh, one of our favorite musicians, one of our favorite bands in the Go-Go's, and now a serious freaking author. What an accomplishment. All I ever wanted, a rock and roll memoir. Thank you, Kathy, for coming on Sound Opinions. Thank you. It was such a pleasure doing this. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, Greg or I like to take a trip to the desert island and play you a song from the jukebox that we can't live without. Greg, too often in 2020, our desert island jukebox picks have been uh, paying tribute to people we've lost. This has been a devastating year for everybody. Music has been no exception. And uh, you've got a, a tribute and desert island pick. Uh, yes, I do, Jim. Uh, sad news, of course, about Eddie Van Halen. Uh, it has been the talk of the rock world, I think, for the last few weeks. He died October 6th at the age of 65 in California, kept it very low-key. He had been suffering uh, from cancer and struggling with it for years. But uh, what a life Eddie Van Halen had. His family moved from Amsterdam when he was just a kid uh, with like 50 bucks and a piano, as Eddie used to say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they and they basically from those hard scrabble uh, beginnings, um, he and his brother Alex uh, formed one of the best selling hard rock bands of all time. I think they were a defining band uh, in the hard rock realm during the '70s and '80s. Obviously, uh, you know somewhere between Aerosmith and then uh, Guns and Roses, there was that Van Halen era where they were the band that was selling out arenas and selling these records and also changing lives. Uh, Eddie Van Halen was such an inspiration to generations of guitar players. I think post-Jimi Hendrix, the most celebrated uh, guitar player of, of, the, of his time, and, and certainly the most innovative. I mean, the guy had to build his own guitars because he wasn't getting the sound yeah. that he wanted out of the conventional instruments that he had before him. Uh, he, he truly did reinvent the instrument in many ways. You know, his skills as a guitar player, you know, if he had just been a technician and just been a player, uh, that would have been enough, certainly. But he brought a joy and a humor to what he was doing as well. I mean, this guy just looked like he was having fun doing it. Yeah. And he maintained that sort of spirit. I remember seeing Van Halen, you know, four or five times over the span of their career, and that was the one constant in the band. I mean, they had their rotating cast of lead singers, <laughs> and his brother was on drums, and Michael yeah. Anthony was on bass, and then his son was on bass, yeah. but Eddie was kind of like the guy uh, up front, and you know that was the reason to watch the band, frankly. I mean, everybody else in that band, to some degree or another, was kind of a journeyman. You know, they would have had probably nice careers, but they wouldn't have had Van Halen's career if it yeah. hadn't been for this guy. And, on and they were they were also impediments to one's enjoyment. Trust <laughs> me. You know, I mean, Sammy Hagar, no, no, and 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 I think with Sammy, they they started taking themselves somewhat seriously, which you know, because of his lyrics, yeah, not, uh, not know, a good idea. That wasn't a good idea. But I think the David Lee Roth era was was fun. It was fun. It, you know, ch check your brain at the door. Just come in here and have fun with yeah, these hot guys. for teacher. Yeah. The, the track I want to play is maybe a little bit deeper track. It's not a, uh, you know, one of the classics like Running with the Devil or whatever, you know. It's Loss of Control from the third album, Woman and Children First. And I think what it does highlight is Eddie's ability to drive a band. I mean, uh, thrash metal really ha wasn't around yet, but I almost feel like this track presages it 
in some ways. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, it was never a big single, but it, an indication of what Eddie could do moving a thousand miles an hour straight ahead and then still putting in these little fills and, and little touches on that guitar. And the one thing I'll remember about Eddie more than anything was that smile. Yeah. Every time he was doing these fantastic things, he wasn't giving you the, the guitar shredder's face. No. He was giving you that little kid on the end of his bed who's finally learned the guitar solo from Crossroads, you know, yeah. by Queen. <laughs> this is Eddie Van Halen with Loss of Control on Sound of Fame. That is Loss of Control from Van Halen with the incredible Eddie Van Halen on guitar, dead at the age of 65. A nice tribute, Greg. And uh, do you have memories of listening to Van Halen? Leave us a comment on Facebook or Twitter and let us know. Or send us a voice memo to interact at soundopinions.org. People have been asking us, when will we get the listener comments back on the show? They're coming, folks. Uh, Send them our way. (laughs) We're eager to air them. Meanwhile, Mr. Cott, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we got a Halloween twofer. We got uh, some songs about witches, which you're going to like, and we're going to dig deep on D'Angelo's classic album, Voodoo. Very appropriate. You can download the Sound Opinions podcast wherever you get such things. Thanks, as always, to our supporters on Patreon. The show was produced by Andrew Gill and Alex Claymore.